Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our Ant Wars episodes. Now, in the previous episodes, we've already covered a ton of different topics. Uh, the evolution of eusocial insects like ants. Um, uh, we talked about uh, the, the conflicts between army ants and, and everything in their path. We talked about theories of uh, combat disparities and how those may apply to ants and, and control the ways that ants sometimes select which members of the colony go out to fight. We talked about the bivouacs, the big war rig for the queen made out of army ants. Um, it's, been a, it's been a great journey so far, but we have to press on. That's right. Uh, so one thing I want to talk about at, at the very start here is the idea of uh, empires of the ants. Because as with human civilizations, apparently it's the larger ant societies that spread the most violence. Smaller ant societies are less likely to engage in any kind of protracted war against other ant species. Uh, but, but here's an interesting point raised by entomologist Sean O'Donnell in Ant Wars for Serious Science. Some species of highly successful invasive ants demonstrate uh, unicolonality. Uh, they develop a willingness to identify members of other colonies as part of their own. And the result is a super colony, a true empire of the ants. Yeah, we discussed the supercolony adaptation in our episodes about the multiple species of ants known as crazy ants. And this mm -hmm. name comes from their rapid, almost frantic or erratic looking movements. Sometimes when you like if you watch video of them moving around on the ground, it almost looks like flies buzzing around. It looks like they're flying. Yeah, it, it's it's visually, at least to us, starkly different from the sort of, uh, you know, uh, linear lines we're used to seeing for ants. Yeah, but the supercoloniality issue came up in our episodes on the mystery of crazy ants supposedly being attracted to electricity or electrical appliances. Remember that? Or we were mm -hmm. talking about all those stories people had of like the, their TV being full of crazy ants and we, people didn't know why that was happening. That was, of course, the raspberry crazy ant of the, the genus Nylanderia. And then we also talked about them in our episodes on Christmas Island. Remember, it was the invasive species of crazy ant known as yellow crazy ants or uh, Anoplo Lepis gracilipes that was severely threatening the Christmas Island crabs. It was actually colonies of those ants that were spraying formic acid into the eyes of the crabs and into the leg joints until they're immobilized and then the ants just eat them. And there was an interesting project to try to uh, introduce a, a species of insect there to Christmas Island that would help cut down on the populations of invasive ants. But anyway, it's the tendency for crazy ants to form super colonies that is considered one factor in their success as an invasive species. Um, you know, so they're super colonial, meaning that when colonies of the same species meet one another, instead of duking it out and going to battle with one another, they just act as if they were from the same colony. They team up instead of antagonizing one another. Um, and there, there are examples where people think they've detected gigantic super colonies of these ants. Uh, 
One that we read in one of those previous episodes was a New York Times article that that quotes Edward Lebrun, who's an ecologist at the University of Texas at Austin, um, and he apparently believes that there was a single super colony in the Texas town called Iowa Colony. I know that's confusing because we're talking about ant colonies, and it's in Texas, not Iowa, but that's a town. It's called Iowa Colony, and he believes that there was a a super colony of crazy ants occupying up to forty two hundred acres in that town and spreading 200 meters a year in every direction. Wow. But that's by no means the only uh, ant super colony that's been found. There, there are other species and other super colonies that have been found all over the continents. That's right. Uh, Mark W. Moffat mentions an extremely large super colony of Argentine ant that ranges from San Francisco to the Mexican border, trillion strong and united. It's a, it's a super colony and wars rage just perpetually along its borders. He writes, each month, millions of Argentine ants die along battlefronts that extend for miles around San Diego, where clashes occur with three other colonies and wars that may have been going on since the species arrived in the state a century ago. Wow. And these wars, as we've discussed in our previous episodes, are far from random thrashings of ant brutality. Uh, these are wars that align with some of the same mathematics and tactics and principles that we see at play in human military history. And we have another example of this to consider, another uh, interesting parallel that's drawn between the wars of ants and the wars of humans, and that is uh, the, 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 uh, this thing that we uh, refer to as ant tournaments or ant tournament sites. Wow. So for starters, you might need to dismiss whatever sort of Mortal Kombat scenario is entering your mind here at the thought of an ant tournament. Oh, yeah, but don't worry because the reality is is much cooler than just like a, a single or double elimination tournament for ants. Uh, so here's the, here's an example that uh, Moffat, E.O. Wilson, and others bring up uh, frequently, and that is honeypot ants. Now these ants are astonishing creatures in their own right. Even before you get to the the tournament issue, uh, their their way of storing food is something that you must see for yourself. You you should look up video of them. Yeah, because they're named honeypot ants because what happens is the workers will um, uh, the, the workers have the ability to gorge themselves until their abdomens are enormously swelled and they look like little honeypots uh, just filled with liquid food. So instead of storing excess food within a, a stash within the colony like a lot of ants do, uh, the honeypot ants store it within themselves in these little mobile depositories that are themselves in swollen workers uh, that we call repletes. And then if if you're another ant in the colony and you need a little food, well, you come up to one of the repletes, uh, and I believe you like you touch their antenna in just the right way, and they'll regurgitate up some food for you. Right. You, 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 you poke your nest mate, and it will barf up your dinner. Yeah, they're like little vending machines. <laughs> Ah, uh, and I see you included a picture of this in our uh, in our notes here for me to look at, Joe. Yeah, oh, they're, yeah. They're wondrous. They're, they're beautiful. They do look like little drops. They're so swollen. They look like droplets of honey or like extremely golden chickpeas. Mm-hmm. They're, they're backlit in this uh, image that I've shared with Robert, and it makes their swollen abdomens look like bits of amber. Now, uh, in addition to this, there, there, are, there are other wrinkles to their, um, their peculiarity. Uh, so they're highly territorial. They frequently prey on foraging termites. And should two different groups of honeypot ants happen upon the same resource, a tournament begins to determine who shall claim it. 
So what happens is the workers from each colony circle around each other, standing up as high as possible on their legs, behavior that uh, biologists call stilting. Uh, so yes, what they're doing is they're trying to look as imposing as possible, as large as possible. And basically, the idea here seems to be that uh, that that uh, the larger colonies of honeypot ants tend to have larger individuals. So it's not only a show of immediate force, like "Hey, look how big we are! Let's get away from our resources." It's also a show of what kind of backup forces you have uh, to call in. That's interesting. So it's just like you can almost count on the fact that if if this ant is big, all of her buddies are big, too. Yeah, it actually reminds me a little bit of the imperial invasion of Hoth and okay. uh, the Empire Strikes Back <laughs> with the deployment of those enormous AT-ATs, uh, which I, I recently saw described online as, quote, a giant impractical terror weapon. Absolutely. Why the legs? Why make your all-terrain attack vehicle so vulnerable to a simple harpoon and tow cable? The, these, these tall, spindly legs make no sense. Well, yeah, if you think too hard about it. But as my, my son was recently telling me, we were watching uh, the Clone Wars series, and he said, you know, walkers are just always cool. It doesn't matter which side they're on. They're just cool. And it's true. <laughs> uh, but, but I think also you could look at it like, yes, it's, a, it's an impractical terror weapon. It sends a message. Hey, we're the Empire, and we have resources on this scale at our disposal. So you'd best just abandon the ice planet to us. Yeah. And so that's what the weaker honeypot ant uh, force ends up doing. This whole tournament uh, uh, practice limits the need for conflict and avoids the need for full-scale ant war. The smaller ant army flees, but much like the rebel alliance, they have to be darn sure that the forces they're, uh, they're ceding to don't follow them and trace them to their primary base because the larger honeypot force uh, will attempt to do this, and they will not hesitate to follow them back to their colony decimate that colony, and then enslave the swollen repletes as their own food stores. Now, this is really interesting, the idea that they, they make this display and try make a calculation about whether it's worthwhile to fight. It's something that goes against the, the naive version of the nature red and tooth and claw idea that, you know, animals are just always fighting and killing each other. It's always a violent struggle for survival. I don't know how you could quantify this, but my gut feeling is that the vast majority of conflicts in nature never come to violence. There are displays between animals and then one side backs down. Yeah, I believe we've talked about this before in discussing like animal weapons and, and, and animal violence is that, you know, how often does one animal outright kill another? You know, it, I mean, certainly in, in apart from predation. predation. Yeah. yeah, apart from predation, like the idea of two animals fighting to the death in a scenario where one is not trying to eat the other is, uh, is more of a rarity. But even so, it's like if you have a, a T-Rex and a Triceratops, the, the T-Rex wants to kill the, uh, the, the Triceratops in this scenario, uh, but it, of course, does not want to be killed itself. The, uh, you know, so it, it would attempt potentially fight to the death. But on the other hand, the Triceratops doesn't want to eat the T-Rex. It just wants to not be eaten by the T-Rex. Yeah, I mean, it, it just brings to mind the fact that animals... They, they don't want to lose a conflict, but probably even more than that, they don't want to die. And so if if things are not looking like a like a pretty clear win for them, they will very often just back down and try to get away. Now, E.O. Wilson and biologist Bert uh, Holdobler 
have, uh, com- have compared this tournament scenario to the symbolic battles in the highlands of New Guinea. The initial phase of a, of, a, of a battle or war in which the two sides square off at a distance. And what they'll do, yeah, this, so they'll, they'll square off at a distance. They're not going to immediately, you know, rush into each other like some sort of Braveheart scenario. That's cinematic um, uh, trope that we all have uh, grown so used to. Instead, they're going to throw spears. They're going to fire arrows at each other, but with range uh, and wooden shields in place. So there's actually like a, a low uh, possibility uh, for fatality. And from here, it might give way to a heated closer battle, but the, its aggressions might actually end right here. And this apparently is something that one sees throughout the history of human conflict, especially uh, when it concerns smaller clans of fighters, because such groups like this simply don't have the resources to enter freely into a state of total warfare. Yeah, I think that state is more common, as we were talking about earlier, in in like larger empires where you also have, you know, the army that arrives on the battlefield also has the force of like a huge state behind it that will not let it walk away. It's a, you know, that that maybe the emperor back home is not going to be pleased if you see that this battle doesn't look good for you and decide it's better not to fight. Yes, you'll find that he's not as forgiving. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think this is obviously a, a smart strategy, and there's a reason humans do this and ants do this. It makes sense to try to avoid conflict if you can. I also can't help but wonder if there's a comparison to be made here. And this is just me. This is not um, any of these other commentators that I've read. They might have gotten into this, and maybe I just haven't read it. But I wonder if you can make a comparison here to the proxy wars uh, between superpowers in the human world. You know, Mm. human cases in which each side certainly has immense resources, but in which case the destructive potential of atomic weaponry essentially reduces both sides to smaller, more vulnerable clans on their respective hillsides. There was something I was trying to look up because this also made me think of the at least uh, epic literary tradition of champion warfare Yes, uh, that is, you know, you read about it in the Iliad. It shows up actually in a lot of of ancient epics and stuff where armies will meet, but instead of – you know, the whole armies clashing with one another, they will each select their greatest fighter. And then those two will fight a duel that is supposed to, at least in some cases, symbolically settle the outcome of the fight. Uh, right. So think of uh, Hector versus Achilles. And I was looking for example, I was like, do ants ever do this? Uh, so I, I was trying to find examples of champion warfare among ants, but I couldn't find anything. I, I don't know if you've come across anything like that. But if there were an example of something like that, that would be really interesting. That would, man, that, yeah, I, I didn't read anything about that in the, the sources I was looking at. It, I wonder how that would, how something like that would evolve, you know? Yeah. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine it, it being a real state of affairs uh, without, I don't know, I guess, symbolic thinking among, I mean, maybe that is something that would be limited. I mean, it, it, even more than that, it seems like something that's more limited to, epic poetry and storytelling than than happens in real life. Right. It kind of bring maybe it's the kind of story that makes the most sense for a people that are so centered on the individual, you know? Mm-hmm. Like here is the individual in the war, the individual that is changing the course of the battle, that sort of thing. Um and it enables you to to take 
larger uh, scenarios of battle that are more difficult to fathom in putting them in a one-on-one scenario. Like in the last episode, we were talking about the Lanchester Square law. You know, we can, it, you know, we can certainly imagine that in our head with the, you know, forces of on one side versus the other. But then you can also put it in the scenario of David and Goliath, right? And there you instantly have this very individual-based story of smaller force and larger force. Even though it tells, it ultimately tells a story, like if we were to take that and extrapolate it to just a smaller force against a larger force, uh, uh, per those laws we were discussing, that makes no sense. Like ultimately, the, the Goliath force is going to win unless there is some sort of crazy, you know, uh, outside context event. Right. Or, I mean, it depends on conditions, right? Because not all right. combat is equivalent. But yeah, generally... All right, on that note, uh, we are going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will get into some of these specialized units of the Ant War. All right, we're back. Robert, when you were a kid, did you get uh, one of those Star Wars visual encyclopedias and just like devour all of the different types of Star Wars stormtroopers that we never saw in the movies? Because in the movies, (laughs) you see the main stormtroopers, you see the ones in the snow with like the big robes and capes almost. I guess that's to keep warm or something. Uh, But then I remember reading about these other types that never show up in the movies, like lava troopers or something. I I don't know. Did you never read about this? Uh, No, I've never heard of lava troopers. Um, I mean, I'm I'm only vaguely remembering, but it seemed very interesting to me. I was like, why isn't there a movie about that? I mean... (laughs) It's it's drawing on the idea that, of course, you would have different types of specialized units for different terrain. Yeah, I, I, uh, Star Wars specific, I never had that book, uh, but certainly just by virtue of being into like miniature war games and even even, you know, plenty of games I don't play or collect in. I love to just pour over the army list like, OK, here are your here are your rank and files and OK, here are your specialists, here are your, yeah, your fast moving troops, here are your heavy troops, here are your uh, you know, infiltration units, here are your close combat units. There's there's something, um, uh, yeah, just just endlessly appealing about uh, about going through the rank and file of a system like that. Totally. Uh, And of course, it shouldn't come as any surprise that many different kinds of ants have their own specialized units. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to discuss uh, some of these. We're not going to be, of course, we're not going to be able to really do justice to the entire rich diversity of the ant world, you know, plenty of which is still being discovered and is yet to be uh, discovered by scientists. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we'll touch on some highlights here that are known. So first, I want to talk a little bit about specialized defenses. Uh, you know, we've talked so much about offense with ants, uh, but but uh, but sometimes uh, there is this particular defensive strategy in mind as well. Uh, zoologist and entomologist Sean O'Donnell points out that leafcutter ants and army ants are both dominant ant species, and when they wage war, those wars can wage for days. So it's a it's a classic matchup in many respects, right? It's a you know ravaging warriors on one side and foraging agriculturists on the other. Right. So you would think of the army ants as primarily like raiding carnivores that are on mm-hmm. the attack, and the the leafcutter ants are they're they're cultivators of their environment. Right. Yeah. So leafcutter ants very famously depend on their workers. They have to go out. They have to cut the leaf portions, bring the leaf portions back, and then those leaf portions are used to grow their precious fruit crop. Which is a fungus, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. a fungus that, that is, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, extinct in the wild, is purely domesticated by ants Amazing. long before humans uh, came on the scene. Unbelievable. 
So it's mostly the work of these, you know, these female workers. But they're, they do have a cast of larger soldiers. And apparently they were something of a mystery for a while. Uh, researchers would look at them and they would ask, well, what are these guys for? They don't seem to be doing anything. They don't seem to have a purpose. But uh, by seeding army and invasions in leafcutter nests, uh, researchers were able to discover that they seem to be specialists just for army ant invasions, sent to the front lines by the thousands uh, to uh, in an attempt to defend the colony, even though it does seem like they tend to fail in the end. But I mean, even in cases where they fail, it's possible they could be, say, buying time for the rest right. of the colony. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to look at that that's that reality in terms of how other ant species deal with army ants, because apparently, you very roughly, you kind of have you have two extremes. On one hand, those who just put up a fight. They're like, army ants are attacking. We're going to fight them back. We're going to give it everything we have. But then you also have some varieties of ants that evacuate everybody at the first sign of an attack. The army ants are coming, so pack it all up. We're getting out of here. But then they can move back in after the invaders have left. Because they're army ants. They're not going to live there. They're not going to hang out in your colony and wait for you to come back. They're, they're, they're here for the goods. And if the goods are not here, they have to keep moving. Right. Now, uh, here's another just super interesting um, uh, adaptation. Um, in the last episode, uh, I mentioned Douglas J. Imlin's book, Animal Weapons, which deals with the evolution of bioweapons in organisms, uh, as well as the development of tool-based weapons in humans. And he discusses the Feodol ant genus, in which individuals fall into various castes. So there are, of course, the reproductive uh, male and females. There are the small workers. There are larger workers. Uh, and then there are the soldiers. And the soldiers of this genus boast, quote, grossly enlarged heads, jaws, and teeth. <laughs> Okay. These are these particular ants are also known as the big-headed ants. But then he also goes on to discuss uh, another uh, genus of ants. This is Odontomachus, uh, the trap-jaw ants, whose lock-and-release jaw structure functions a lot like uh, a mantis shrimp. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all this stored potential energy, like a crossbow that has been uh, pulled back and locked. So when these jaws shut uh, on uh, these uh, trap-jaw ants, they can shut at speeds of 143 miles per hour. So they, they slam shut really fast. Right. And here's where it gets... gets <laughs> Sorry, gets, that was a stupid restatement of what you said, but let's keep it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, very very fast, uh, especially on at this scale too, right? Um, but, but here's where it gets even more interesting. This is where it gets kind of cunning because the trap jaw ants, of course, they can release this bite at their adversaries, mm-hmm. but they can also unleash this bite at the ground and in doing so, launch themselves backwards through the air 20 body lengths as a successful escape tactic. Wow. So th- this reminds me of uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, there's this ability that rogues have called the cunning action ability that allows them to effectively disengage and backtrack out of battle. So they're able to to strike at an enemy and then get out of there really quick. So, so the enemy can't smite them back the next uh, round. Um, yeah. yeah it's, it's, so it's, it's crazy to think it's almost like they have jetpacks, these ants. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of what a what a human technological uh, comparison would be. I was thinking about like, I guess escape pods or ejector seats from fighter planes, or uh, or, or just like maybe like a, it's kind of like a, a sky hook. Maybe a plane flies over, just picks you up. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know if there is re- truly a direct because uh, when we're when we're talking about re- retreat and uh, effectively, uh, uh, you know, backing your forces out in a in a military scenario, I mean, generally it's a very delicate situation with uh, 
with, with human military forces. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of anything offhand that seems like a direct parallel to this. Now, a lot of ants boast uh, chemical weapons. We touched on this in the very first episode where we talked about the basic evolution of ants, mm -hmm. in which early on it seems like you had more like powerful stings that were uh, aimed at large, uh, for instance, vertebrate threats mm -hmm. to uh, the, the ants. But then the, the uh, evolutionary pressure becomes more focused on uh, ant warfare. And there, so, therefore, you see all these various... Um, uh, adaptations emerge where it's more about waging war against ants. Right. And sometimes this takes the place of new chemical weapons that they may use. So a very famous one, of course, would be formic acid, the word formic coming from the word for ants, formicidae. Yeah, and so that's what we see with the uh, yeah, the formic acid of the formica wood ants. So these ants can spray formic acid from the tips of their abdomen. In fact, uh, yeah, formic acid was first extracted in 1671 by the English naturalist John Ray. Is John Ray the guy we talked about who was uh, doing the experiments uh, with, with ants and formic acid and was comparing it to urine? I don't think think it is. I had to pull him up. And granted, a lot of these uh, individuals uh, with portraits from from the late uh, 17th, early uh, 18th century uh, kind of look the same to me. But um, mm -hmm. I don't think we touched on him before. Could be wrong. But anyway, the, the, the formic acid of these ants, this is a great example of one variety of, of really in and of itself amazing chemical weapons that have been developed by, uh, that have evolved in these ant species. But there are even more exotic examples to look at. And in this, we're getting into the topic of exploding ants. This, which, is, um, this is so good. <laughs> yeah, this is a lot of you probably heard about uh, about examples of this before, uh, because, I mean, it's just such an amazing topic. And it certainly made the rounds in science communication and science journalism. Uh, and in fact, I think we've probably mentioned it on the show in the past. Uh, however, uh, we're going to touch on some new stuff as well here, uh, like uh, new findings, new species that have been discovered just in the last uh, year or so. So, um, well, one, one example that comes up a lot is uh, Campanotus sandersi of Malaysia and Brunei, whose bodies are riddled with poison sacs. And so when, they attack, when they're attacked, they constrict and rupture, fatally forcing sticky poison out of their mouth, anus, and through their exoskeleton. And again, don't think of this as of the individual in this scenario, think of the, the group, think of the colony, the good of the colony. So this is a situation where the individual is a biological weapon and they can readily sacrifice themselves to do damage uh, against or in some way slow down an invading species. Yeah, I mean, again, think of the colony as an organism. So this is sort of like an animal with poison skin. The ant yeah. is sort of like the, the the skin of the poison arrow frog. Right. And the, but the, in this case, they can they can like bear down and burst themselves like a like a like a cooked sausage. You know, uh, like this, a this like is, a gusher. Yeah, poison uh, gusher. Is, yeah, exactly. Uh, this is called um, autothesis, and it's uh, involved independently in a number of termite species as well. But uh, but you see different varieties of it. They kind of shed light on how this seems to have evolved. So sometimes you'll have a, uh, an autothesis uh, utilizing species that simply defecates on their enemies. Get too close and I'm going to poop onto you. Mm -hmm. uh, other times you see it more uh, a situation where they're, uh, they're bearing down, like they're pooping so hard that they're going to rupture their abdomen. And from this we get into sort of more exaggerated modes of just absolute uh, abdominal um, explosion. 
And in fact, like I was saying, there's a there's a nice new example of this that's come out. I was just reading an April 2020 establishment published in Zookeys via Lossany et al. about another variety of exploding at known as uh, Colobopsis explodens. <laughs> explodens. I love this. Uh-huh. Yeah, explodens, aka yellow goo ants. But uh, we're just going to call them explodens because that's that's uh, clearly where the fun is. So this is a, a wonderfully fascinating species because minor workers in the colony have this exploding ability. Uh, They can burst themselves into this yellow uh, chemical goo that is kind of like a spice that, you know, again, will kill or slow down or or aggravate, damage an invader. But then they also have have these larger uh, major type workers, and they're referred to as doorkeepers because they have, quote, big plug-shaped heads, which they use to block intruders in the tunnels. Pause to appreciate this for a moment. So uh, this is something that other species of ant have have a version of this too. Specialized members that essentially have a locked door for a head. Uh, <laughs> it's like this is a fascinating biomechanical way to raise the drawbridge on your colony, right? These would be ants that have dug, you know, excavated colonies with tunnels and the ants themselves become part of the defensive structure by closing the entrances of the tunnels with their heads. Yeah, this is amazing. I also point out, I believe there's another variety of ant that seals its entrances with stones. And we'll get into some stone examples here in a bit. But um, I want to get back to explodents, though. So this is a particularly elegant adaptation for defense. But it also, at least on the surface, seems to buck the trend we see earlier with marauder ants. For the marauders, the majors are the big guns. They're the ATSDs that move in to tear apart enemies uh, that have been bogged down amid the individually less less impressive miners. For explodents, the majors are the plugheads, so they function mostly as barricade engines. Uh, perhaps, you know, one could make a loose comparison to a, like a mobile field generator in Star Wars or something. And with explodents, the, the majors rarely leave the nest. They're, they're purely domestic defenses. It's the miners, however, that pack the explosive punch that are, that are self-detonating, uh, sacrificing you know, themselves, uh, ending their lives in an attempt to strike out against the invaders. So these are literally suicide missions. Yeah, yeah. Like w- what apparently will happen is um, – uh, like with the marauder uh, miners, the explodents miners are indeed the first wave. So there's an attack on the nest, then they pour into battle, they latch onto an enemy with their mandibles, and then they hold their abdomen close to their grappled enemy. Then they bear down and they burst, oozing out a, a, a thick, spiced yellow goo that, again, either kills them or hinders uh, the attacker. Wow. And then again, marauder style, the explodents majors burst in with their plug heads to barricade the tunnels against increased invasion. And I guess one of the interesting things to think about here is that we're really getting into a whole specialized realm of ant warfare, defensive warfare fought within the nest. Um, you know, defensive urban warfare uh, specialists here, tunnel warfare specialists, uh, which is something, of course, we see tunnel warfare and urban warfare in human scenarios. And it makes me think back uh, to uh, the the linear, uh, Lanchester's linear loft that we discussed in the last episode. 
yeah, again, as a refresher, the linear law uh, tends to apply more to uh, conflicts that are clo- something closer to a series of sequential duels where a force with larger numbers can't use the, the square power of those larger numbers to easily overwhelm smaller forces. Uh, you, you use defenses to your advantage to try to limit the scope of how much battle can take place at the same time. And a classic way to do this is to create choke points, to create tunnels. Yeah, and so this species would seem a master at choke points. So if you're you're pouring into their uh, to their home, and you've got you know hundreds of of uh, soldier ants at their, at their disposal, like they have numbers on their side, but they have specialists that can explode. Uh, and a specialist that can uh, seal off the tunnel, uh, so which gives, seems to give them, uh, uh, you know, more or less equal footing with the invaders. And I want to stress again that Explodens is a newly discovered variety of self-sacrificing ant, first written about in 2020. Uh, and so more remains to be explored about them. But also, in general, it, it just drives home how many uh, ant species are out there in the world that we just that we haven't fully documented yet. How many how many strange and wonderful adaptations are out there uh, that just simply haven't been chronicled yet? Isn't that amazing? Just to know that there's so much more to learn. There'll be things like this, just bizarre, amazing adaptations that already exist. It's not like they're going to come into being in the future. I mean, obviously, new species will come into being. They're already out there. We just never looked at them before, never at least never documented them in a, in a thorough way. Absolutely. All right. On that note, we're going to take one last break. But when we come back, we'll discuss the Stone Age tactics of bicolor ants. All right, we're back. So the next variety of ant I want to touch on is the Dory Myrmix bicolor ants. So if you have the higher ground, you know, all you need is gravity and mass, right? Soldiers can defend cliffs or the walls of a castle by dropping stones on the heads of attackers. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you can also go on the offense, particularly via the technologies in the human realm of bombardment. An enemy might drop things such as stones, bodies, or explosives upon an enemy city. Yeah, in the human realm, I mean, w- one way you can think about the evolution of an air force is that it is a it is a force evolved to give you permanent high ground. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes ants can definitely take advantage of this, in particular these Dorymyrmix bicolor ants of Arizona, um, previously known as Conomirma bicolor ants. They were discovered back in 1979 by Moglick and Alpert to uh, actually use small stones to drop um, on their adversaries. Basically, ant tool use was Whoa. the argument. Yeah. Now, uh, I mean, I guess when you think about ant tool use, you do have to like take a step back and think about what ants are always doing. Mm-hmm. They're manipulating uh, the soil. They're manipulating little grains of sand and moving them around. Right. And this is just kind of a, a byproduct of that. What else are you doing with those pieces of the ground. So basically, the researchers back in 79 observed that workers surrounding the nest would pick up small stones and other objects and drop them down the nest entrances of rival nests that were, uh, you know, reasonably close by. Now, comparing it to bombardment might be a, a bit much, but it is at the very least active interference in a competitor's industry. So, so perhaps one might think of it more as uh, like industrial sabotage. 
I don't know. I mean, it's, it seems like that would sort of count. I mean, it's using gravity and high ground to your advantage in the attack on the enemy's infrastructure. So in many ways, it seems a lot like bombing or shelling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you could make a, an argument for it. Uh, again, going back to our first episode, nothing in the ant world is going to be one to one with the human world. But uh, you know, like Moffat said, you know, good comparisons, you know, worthy com- comparisons are not going to be direct one to ones. Uh, but there are a few other possible cases of soil and pebble-based tool use by ants, um, which, again, shouldn't be really all that surprising given their intense manipulation of the earth. A 1964-65 paper from Lynn et al. reported pavement ants using soil to attack bees. And the desert harvester ant will apparently drop bits of soil into honey water and then carry the soil particles back as a way to bring the honey water to the nest. Oh. Uh, this was this was via a, a, a study conducted in 84 by Philip McDonald of the New York Entomological Society. And it, it seems to be related to uh, the, the similar use of, of, of soil to cover up liquids that ants cannot just outright remove. Hmm. Okay, so the idea here is that you come across a liquid food source that you want to bring back to the nest. You, obviously, you can't carry liquid the same way you could carry like a part of another insect's body back as food. Mm-hmm. So they will pour like soil into the liquid to create a sponge full of sugar and then carry that soil sponge, the sugary soil sponge back toward the queen. That seems to be the case here. Now, uh, it, it's it's possible that this is something that more uh, is uh, is obvious in experimental scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not entirely certain on that, but it, it it certainly underlines like what is possible using the properties of soil at that scale. Right. And again, it 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 seems like the more um, uh, usual activity that you see is like there's some sort of say a poison or a chemical. Mm-hmm. The ants don't know what to do with it. They can't really interact with it directly, but they can put soil on it. They can essentially bury it. They can cover it up. Right. Like kicking soil onto a smoldering campfire or something. Yeah. So yeah, I, I would imagine that these studies alleging some form of ant tool use, like most of the studies alleging types of tool use in animals, probably have encountered some dispute, you know, about interpretation of the behaviors. Uh, yeah. that, it seems like that always comes up. Now, uh, here's another one that's pretty interesting. This is an example brought up by Moffat uh, concerning the so-called uh, slave maker ants. So slave making is also known as um, dulosis in the biology world. So these are cases where you'll have um, ants that are brood parasites that in some species rely on the practice absolutely, but in other species are not obligate slave makers. So basically what they do is they invade a a colony, they capture the brood of another ant, usually they're capturing the young, and uh, generally it is a very specific species that they're focusing on, and then they bring those young back to their own nest where they're made to work while members of the slave maker species itself just focus on raiding more nests for more workers. Now, Moffat shares that while slave-making ants are generally heavily armored, heavily armed with superior fighting abilities, some species use a propaganda chemical, uh, is the the term he he uses, to throw off the enemy during raids. Uh, So you have to think about this, right? You may be big and strong, but it goes back to that linear uh, law. Uh, that if you're going in to invade a colony, if you're going to go into the thick of it, then great armor, great uh, weapons, that's only going to get you so far if you're outnumbered. But if you have some sort of 
chemical um, advantage, if you're able to trick the others into thinking you're supposed to be there, then you have an enormous advantage. It doesn't matter about their superior numbers. And so in these cases, these propaganda chemical using slave maker ants, they can often carry all of this out without any fighting or killing taking place. You know, it's not just forms of rival ants. There, it almost seems like there is a whole genre across different types of animals that's just adaptations for the safe infiltration of ant colonies. Yeah, uh, myrmecophiles. So the, yeah. the, 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 the whole classification of animals that have, uh, have come to depend upon uh, the ants and uh, in many cases use some sort of chemical signal to trick the colony into thinking they're supposed to be there. Now, here's another uh, example just of, uh, of general sort of ant war um, strategies uh, that, is, uh, that is brought up. Uh, Moffat brings this one up as well. Uh, weaver ants. So weaver mm-hmm. ants are not merely an army on the move, but they, they hold and control territory. They spread their workers out across it and then focus resources around key choke points. They even establish leafy barrack nests in the crowns of trees. And Moffat points out that, that weaver ants are therefore less rigid compared to army ants. Quote, weavers, in contrast, wander more freely and are more versatile in their response to opportunities and threats. The difference in style calls to mind the contrast between the rigidity of Frederick the Great's armies and the flexibility and mobility of Napoleon Bonaparte's troops. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So, so the idea is that if a weaver ant does encounter a problem in the empire, it uses a recruitment pheromone to call in reinforcements from the immediate area, as opposed to just having like one war gang uh, ravaging around the territory. Right. So again, these are not, this is not a, an attempt to create an exhaustive list of all the amazing adaptations that ants have developed to wage wars against each other, defend against each other. But hopefully it, it helps provide uh, more of an idea of the rich diversity out there. This is one of my favorite types of topics that, that frequently comes up on the show. It's one of those where you feel like you've gotten just a tiny glimpse, you know, behind through, through a curtain or through a window into a vast, uh, you know, mansion of possibilities and, and, and rich relationships, uh, that, that you don't even think about most of your waking hours that, you know, that the, the world is just shocking. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and I think it's really interesting to look at the work of, of you know, Wilson, Moffat, uh, and others when they compare ants to the human world. Because on one hand, it helps us better understand the ants, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's how humans work. Like if we can see ourselves reflected to some degree in another organism, then we can understand that organism better, even if it's, you know, we're kind of uh, anthropomorphizing uh, to get there. Right. But then on the other hand, it, it does seem like we potentially have a lot to learn about what we are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we're getting into, you know, the sociobiology of uh, V.O. Wilson or, can, or uh, you know, certainly uh, Moffat gets into this a lot in his book, The Human Swarm, where he's, he's, he's not just looking at the ant world. He's, he's moving from there into the human world and trying to make sense of what we're doing. Yeah, and of course, you know, we're, we're incredibly different creatures than ants, but some of the same resource dynamics and things like that are always going to be in play no matter what species you're talking about. Yeah. In that E.O. Wilson uh, documentary, I believe he he shares this quote. Uh, He says, quote, the real problem of humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology, and it is terrifyingly dangerous. And it is now approaching a point of crisis overall. 
I think in many ways that's true. And it, it brings to mind, you know, something that's been sort of simmering for me throughout these episodes is that what I would hope we could learn by, by looking at the warfare of other organized species like eusocial insects and uh, comparing that to, to get perspective on human life is not that we learn how better to wage war through it, but maybe how not to wage war and how to avoid war. Yeah, yeah. There's the, the, the sort of the lesson that we don't need to live like ants. Yeah. Um, I mean, because ants, for all the comparisons we've made, you know, they're they're free of these human burdens that we've mentioned. You know, they're emotionless. Their their ways, while comparable to human institutions in some way, are free of institutional constraints. Well, Robert, while I agree with you in a sense about that, though, I would I, I would be careful about the idea that they're emotionless, given our uh, well, uh, true, yes, our, our invertebrate emotions episode. But yeah, we we don't know we don't think that they have complex inner lives the way that we do, even though they have these internal states that you could probably recognize as being something like fear or joy, possibly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I have heard before, uh, I forget who, there was an entomology. I don't think it was Wilson. Um, maybe it was Moffat in an NPR piece mm-hmm. talking about the uh, watching ants and feeling that some ants had... Um, almost a personality. So mm-hmm. you're, you're correct. I shouldn't be too fast to dismiss them as emotionless, though uh, an individual ant soldier is far, I think, far less of an individual than a, than a human. I think we can, oh, yeah. we can at least focus on that. Um, and then in terms of like what they can do, I mean, certainly they are a powerful force within the ecosystem. It's been observed that if all humans died today, ants would proceed just fine. But if all the ants died, uh, the world would be uh, in a state of absolute chaos. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close it out right there. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this three-part look at ant warfare. But obviously, there's so so much in the ant world. We can easily return, probably will return at some point in the, the future to discuss ants once more, especially as uh, researchers continue to make new discoveries. Totally. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.